Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. Welcome to our August expert series. As we are all considering options for back to school and what's best for our children and families, we are excited to have with us today two individuals who can give us more insight and provide details to help in navigating the decisions about back to school. A few housekeeping items before we get started. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website and our podcast channels in the coming days. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash back to school. If you're joining us via your computer, you should see the presentation shortly on your screen. Please use the Q&A feature to ask questions throughout the presentation. You'll see the button on the bottom of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. We're excited to have with us today, Gina Padgett and Beth Fulcher. Gina is a licensed school psychologist and teacher for the deaf and hard of hearing in the state of Indiana. She completed her bachelor's degree in deaf education at Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and received her master's degree in, ling in linguistics from Gal Gal Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. I know I completely mispronounced yeah, Gallaudet University. Gallaudet. Thanks, Gina. Gina proceeded to Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana, where she received her training in school psychology. She has been an educator for over 25 years with a specialty in evaluating students with low incidence, disabilities, and health conditions. Beth Fulcher will be joining us for the second half of the presentation. Beth received her master's in education with a focus on educational leadership from Lehigh University in 2002. She has been teaching high school history in Pennsylvania's public school system for over 24 years, working with all levels of special needs kids. In 2005, Beth's son Luke was born and diagnosed with LCHAD via newborn screening. Beth brings a unique perspective in managing IEPs and 504s for students, having been on the teacher side and also as a parent. To get us started, please join me in welcoming Gina Paget. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Yes, so the first part of today's presentation would be about some back to school considerations for children with special needs and medically fragile students. Given the nature of this pandemic, I know that that is certainly uh, an area of concern for many, even for uh, parents with children that do not necessarily have any type of underlying health concerns. So we're gonna try to address some of those today. Following through, with what's really provided by the experts right now in our science and literature and medical wise and other recommendations. So we're gonna look at what are the experts saying? What is some educational impact that we've seen so far with the pandemic? What families can do and what school corporations are in the process of currently doing? What we do know with the American Academy of Pediatrics with their sciences showing that the opening of schools does not significantly increase community transmission, particularly when guidance outlined by the World Health Organization 
United Nations Children's Fund, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are followed or is followed. So following those guidelines, we do know that at least opening of schools is not necessarily increasing the transmission of an underlying COVID infection. With the Mitochondrial Medicine Society, based on their January 11, 2021 statement, they did note that immune deficiency is not a common feature of mitochondrial disease, and therefore most people in mitochondrial disease should not be at increased risk of contracting COVID-19 infection. But then also it was noted there's still much uncertainty about risks of COVID-19 infection in people with mitochondrial disease. Obviously underlying that the treating physician coordinating with their guidance is certainly essential in determining how to best protect uh, an individual or student with mitochondrial disease in the nature in dealing with this pandemic. What we have already beginning studies showing about the importance of in-person learning. There were considerable options available this past year, sometimes it was a hybrid where it's partial in learning, partial uh, virtual learning. Some families opted for full virtual learning. And what we did see was that there were considerably more factors to consider with that virtual learning or greater impact. With that virtual learning component, a lot of families dealt with uh, emotional distress primarily because there would be multiple platforms, maybe in how there was learning, where we're gonna find the assignments, where we submit the assignments, and it can vary from teacher to teacher, from school to school. Also trying to have, if there's more children in the home, navigating multiple online uh, services that are being provided, uh, dealing with the child's refusal to engage in remote lessons. I think we often hear how children respond differently to families or their parents than they do to teachers. So getting them to participate and complete work was also challenging for families. Sometimes families didn't realize that some of the assessments might be district-wide assessments or intervention program assessments. So they're providing a little too much help. So then there's the child's score is elevated and the programming that's designed to fill in any academic gaps may not necessarily identify those gaps because the child received help during those assessments without the parent realizing, oh, I'm supposed to let the child complete those tests independently. It was also like less access to teachers. And then there was also reduced attendance um, and lower work submission and completion is what we often found with virtual learning. Um, sometimes it was also with hotspots technology access, tablet issues or computer issues that also interfered with virtual learning. And for students, it was less physical activity, sitting longer in front of a computer, because it's different than those video games that provide frequent uh, reinforcement. Virtual learning may not necessarily provide enough reinforcement to remain engaged. Some children were also complaining of how they missed their classmates and playing with others in recess and lunch. Oftentimes when I'm assessing children, that's some of their favorite activities and they miss having those uh, opportunities at school. Now with in-person learning, there was a constant quarantining of students. If they were exposed to someone who potentially may have had COVID symptoms or had COVID, of course, then they would have a mandated of 10 days to quarantine. 
Sometimes it often meant quarantining entire classrooms and schools sometimes closed because so many educators were out on quarantine, we didn't have enough substitutes. So at times the whole school went into virtual learning mode due to a lack of faculty available to provide instruction or to monitor for supervision. Children were either eating in their classrooms or in separate classes for lunch schedules. We, they were oftentimes rather than mixing in-service groups or intervention groups, children had to remain specifically just with their core class to prevent any type of contact tracing issues. And at this time, that there were still last year, there were more mask use. As we start the beginning of the year, there is now a lot of heated debate with different corporations discussing some are mandating mask wearing, some it's optional. Uh, and then like I shared earlier, there's also a school corporation where they're still making decisions on whether or not they will mandate masks. Uh, we do know that we can't say who's vaccinated or unvaccinated. However, it's it's a bit confusing in terms of dialogue as to if you must con if you're in contact with someone who's unvaccinated, and they may show symptoms, then you're to quarantine. But that's still being ironed out in terms of details in my local corporation, as I'm sure with others. And then there was also mandated testing for COVID if there's signs of exposure. Now, one of the key components that we also identified was the potential mental health indicators in children from preschool all the way through high school, because we do know that it's affected adult mental health, but also student mental health. And a lot of times, even from preschool to high school, they may not necessarily always have the language to let us know precisely what's going on. And so you may have like at the preschool, thumb sucking, bedwetting, clinging to parents, sleep disturbance, loss of appetite, fear of the dark or regression in behavior or just a social withdrawal. When I was working with preschoolers, most of the time it was clinging to parents because parents were working to home. They were more used to being around their parents and they were having a tougher time separating and attending to any type of early intervention services because they wanted their parents with them. Naturally, this is, these are all characteristics of preschool, but these can be more atypical or more pronounced within a couple of weeks, then we may know that there might be some underlying anxiety type issues going on. At elementary, it could be additional or heightened levels of irritability or aggressiveness, clinginess, nightmares, more school avoidance or poor concentration or withdrawal from activities and friends. At the high school level, it could be disturbances with sleeping and eating or agitation. There are more conflict involved in argumentative, more uh, maybe more physical complaints, delinquent behaviors, and also with, so, with social withdrawal. In order to support students in their mental health needs and also their outcomes, it's gonna be really key to make them feel elements of control. That's the way it is for all of us, including adults, is teaching positive prevention methods because that will make them have a sense of control over risk infection and what's happening, but also reduce their anxiety. So a big part for all families is to really be a role model. Be aware of how you're talking about health in general. Um, 
assure your child the family is healthy and that you're doing what is in your power to keep the family safe and healthy, but also listen to their feelings. If they need to draw them, that's fine too, or write them down. Respond with truth and assurance and use the information from a lot of the experts that mental health agencies um, and other health agencies that are providing because they're not necessarily involved in politics, but they're trying to provide the most accurate information for all of us to make the wisest decisions for uh, our children and for ourselves. Let your child's questions guide you. In early elementary, there may be brief information with appropriate reassurance that you're keeping them healthy and that the adults at school and at home, if they're not feeling well, we're gonna take care of them. We're gonna make sure they're okay with upper elementary, middle school. They especially have access to social media. So do high school students. And so there's a lot of rumor or fantasy or misinformation in terms of how they're accessing information. Help them discern what is reality and what is truthful information. They're gonna be more vocal and inquisitive. So be prepared for their types of questions. Upper and middle school, they will be also inquisitive. Just provide that straightforward, honest, and accurate and factual information, but include them more in those family plans uh, of how we're going to make sure we're all safe, scheduling, home chores. All of this is to provide reassurance, but also to help give them some power and control. Explain like social distancing, that really what we're trying to do is the more we, we maintain this, we can reduce the spread of infection that, we, that eventually we hope we won't have to deal with that in the future. Positive time, including maybe virtual sessions with friends, um, but also more fat family activities that can be very memorable and maintaining that daily routine. Daily routine provides predictability and that can provide comfort and reduce anxiety. Even identify service projects on what the child may want to make, uh, crafts or write letters or do other things in the service of others. Sometimes that also can help feel power and control, but also that reinforcement of doing something good for in service of others. Demonstrating deep breathing and nurturing that mindfulness. That's gonna be also key. I think it's good for all children to learn. When you're using deep breathing techniques, you're reducing that carbon dioxide level in the bloodstream that causes elevated levels of blood pressure. By expelling that, that helps promote calmness, mindfulness about being present in the moment. So like there's a lot of free visuals that families can download online from a variety of sources, just simply searching the internet. And there is also a lot of apps and also YouTube videos that talk about breathing and, and especially like cartoons for kids. So that deep breathing from the diaphragm in about four seconds and then holding briefly and then slowly breathing out. I see a lot raising their shoulders when they try to breathe and that compromises the diaphragm. We, I often tell the little ones, let's do some belly breathing and make your stomach big. So that's where I try to really emphasize that it comes from the center and not necessarily this upper body shoulder shrug. And you wanna do this for a number of series of breaths, you know, at least five or longer 
to keep to expel that carbon dioxide that helps with that calming. And it's good to do while doing any type of visualization or progressive muscle relaxation type meditation. That is very powerful in relaxing. And I think it's a great activity to embed every day because over time it can promote wellness, but also in times of stress, it can also help promote calm. Teaching them the 20-second hand washing rule. For children with significant learning challenges, counting to 20 might be hard. So singing the twinkle twinkle little song or any other song that might last about 20 seconds can be a substitute on letting them know how long they should be washing their hands in order to maintain safe practice. Building that healthy immune system, that balanced diet, adequate sleep and exercise. And as I pointed out earlier, physical activity will be important. So that can certainly be something that could be a family activity and what a child can do with a family member that's outside that promotes exercise or participating in the parent's exercise regimen. Collaborating with the treating physician on medical supports is also going to be essential in, in curtailing this unique special needs for your child. Now at schools, they're following a lot of the American Academy Pediatrics recommendations. There is all types of discussions, especially in the media about wearing masks. What the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending that all students older than two years and all school staff should wear face masks at school unless medical and developmental conditions prohibit use. They're also recommending and a lot of schools have made sure to promote appropriate ventilation within buildings, quarantine practices, disinfecting, social distancing, as well as testing, monitor attendance of inclusive in-person and virtual settings. So a lot of school corporations have really expanded on how they're tracking attendance, whether or not it's in-person or virtual or hybrid. So you're having different categories now in terms of how attendance is being monitored, but also those proactive strategies to support attendance. So if it is, for example, for making sure that there's more hotspots and internet access to families and the technology for the virtual, that might be, for example, a, a strategy to support virtual attendance. Differentiated strategies to identify and support those higher risk for absenteeism. And it's also those students who are at risk of learning difficulties as a result of not engaging in curriculum. Because as a psychologist, that can be very challenging if a student has been absent for a number of days, especially even the virtual realm. It's difficult to know if their learning is due to a lack of access to instruction and curriculum or if there is an underlying learning disability, that by law, we have to rule that feature out of an environmental effect. So it is important for children to remain engaged in school and have access to their curriculum. And that, and if, if it is through a virtual setting, that still does count as access to school curriculum. Coordinated communication among school districts, state and local public health authorities, medical providers, and local health providers. So a lot of school administrators are in coordination with the local health advisors, as well as customized considerations and accommodations to account for students with those medical needs, developmental challenges, or a disability. So as I shared earlier, 
collaborating with your medical provider and learning what would be health factors. And then also with the school, learning how to really embed those unique health needs for the student will be important and including those in, for example, like an individualized education program or IEP for students who are receiving special education services. Most IEPs often will include um, in-person and so they may also have for example, policies, uh, pardon me, uh, policies for students who, um, I kind of lost my place there. They may also have policies in place if a student or the corporation should have to receive virtual education. So there were oftentimes a lot of what we call IEPs that would have an additional service delivery addendum as to what health services virtually will be delivered, the nature of them, and then what those services would uh, consist of. So that also might be a very important service delivery uh, consideration or a customized consideration within that IAP. Now, most students in general education, what we saw to help remediate or ameliorate a lot of those difficulties, there were access to like summer school programs. There were also additional access to curriculum programs that provided intervention access to strengthen uh, skills where there were academic gaps. So, and then also additional behavioral support personnel in order to help with some of the mental health needs that were stemming from uh, COVID because a lot of children were also dealing with potential loss of family members or, or family members who were sick with COVID. So also that was an area that schools were tagging in and looking at to make sure they were addressing and meeting those global student needs. So that is pretty much the, the beginning part of this presentation, I guess, Beth, you're completing the second half. So I'm going to go ahead and segue to let you uh, continue talking about some of those school plans options that are available. Great. Thank you, Gina. Let me share my screen here. Okay, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, what Gina was saying about 504s and a, a little bit of the differences with, between the 504s and the IEPs, but because um, my knowledge is a little bit more with 504 plans and, and we're, we're going to be talking a little bit more of that, the medical side of how to advocate for your child when he or she goes to school this year. So first, a little bit about me as Kyra said, professionally, I've been an 11th grade history teacher in Easton Area High School for 24 years. I'll start my 25th in two weeks. It's kind of scary. Um, I've taught all levels of student ability in an inclusive classroom, everywhere from um, the very advanced advanced placement students, some of whom still have the 504s and the IEPs, all the way down to a co-taught special ed classroom and everybody in between. I've also been a member of the student assistance program throughout the year, the years, and we help students um, who are having barriers to their learning and getting them proper counseling, whether it's mental health, um, study skills, um, or drug and alcohol. So we deal with kind of everything again. And also I have a master's in educational leadership from Lehigh University here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. 
Uh, personally, I've been affected by 504s as well, um, not just professionally. I am mom to Luke, who will be 16 next week. And he was diagnosed at birth with LCHAD slash TFP, which is a fatty acid oxidation deficiency. Um, because of his group or because of his uh, disorder, we have to look at how he can be successful throughout each day at school. And that's where the 504 plan comes in. And it's something that we have been involved with since 2011. And we revisit it every single year to make sure that it's still appropriate. Um, and also we allow Luke to be a part of that as well. So when we're talking about special education um, and what your child may or may need, I have just a very brief description of the differences between 504s and IEPs. Um, a 504 is a blueprint, a blueprint or a plan for how the school will support a student with a disability. Um, whereas an IEP deals specifically with special education. If your child were to qualify for special education because of a learning disability, specific or un unspecific. Um, it provides services to change the learning environment and enable to have the student learn alongside their peers. So in other words, they're learning the same thing at the same time. It's just my child might have to be allowed to have a Gatorade or a snack. So we're taking that idea of um, his disability has to deal with sugars and fatty acid oxidation deficiency. We're taking that fasting out of the um, equation. So he doesn't have to worry about that. Um, both are under federal legislation. The 504 is under section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, whereas the IEP is Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And anybody who qualifies for an IEP who has, I'm sorry, for a 504, who has a physical or mental impairment that limits one or more major life activities, for example, learning, breathing, thinking, walking, or bodily functions. Um, and the disability must interfere with the child's ability to learn in a general edu education classroom. The IEP is a little bit different in that it tackles specific learning challenges. Um, sometimes something like um, dyslexia, ADHD, those would fall more under the IEP in a lot, of, a lot of places and the actual curriculum would have to be changed for the child. For example, um, on a multiple choice test, my child with an IEP would get three choices to, rather than four. So we eliminate choices or we give him or her extra time or tests are read aloud. So this deals more with, uh, again, specific learning disabilities. Oops. So why get a, a 504? Why don't we just email the teachers and talk to the teachers? Um, here's why. It protects a student from discrimination based on their disability and ensures equal access. And it makes sure, and this is the part that's very, very um, near and dear to my heart, is that it makes all school personnel in contact with the student aware of their accommodations, not just teachers. Anybody who has um, 
access to your child throughout the day, including cafeteria monitors, coaches, substitutes, bus drivers. Without that 504, your school counselor or school principal might know about your child's specific illness and accommodations, but they're not necessarily allowed to share it with other um, people in the school because it's outlined by FERPA. So it's kind of like HIPAA, but only educational records. So I had an incident this past year, actually, just in June, where a, a girl named Haley was in my class and her mother found out that her child was going to fail my class. And she said, why is she failing? She gets extra time. And I said, she doesn't get extra time. Well, her, and then her mom and I went kind of back and forth. It was a very cordial response and, and questioning, but it was, well, she was diagnosed with severe depression and mental stress. And I have all of the documentation and I told the guidance counselors about it. And I said to her, well, does she have a 504? Because I have not seen any documentation. And she said, no, we don't have a 504. I don't know what that is. And I said, well, that allows for all school, school personnel to understand what Haley needs throughout the day. And so without that 504, just telling a guidance counselor, it, it doesn't cover all of your bases especially in a high school where you might have six or seven different high school teachers who deal with them throughout the day, or even a substitute. You know, it's great that you have a good relationship with your teacher, but that happened one time with my son, Luke. Um, his gym teacher was great, but he was out one day and the substitute gym teacher did not, was not aware of his 504 um, or didn't follow it, I'm not sure. Um, but then that we had to get, we, we got that all settled, but that's why it's important to have a 504 so that every single person understands that your child needs something just a little bit different. Examples of common, um, accommodations for 504s for fatty acid oxidation deficiency, which I kind of speak to specifically, um, regular snack breaks, unlimited access to the bathroom or the nurse, wiping down shared desks. Um, I've had kids who've had scoliosis, so their parents ask for an extra set of textbooks so that they don't have to bring their textbooks home. Perfectly acceptable thing to do. Um, modifications for exemptions from modifications or exemptions from physical education. Um, I, also in mind is that I'm notified if my child exhibits symptoms. If his head comes down, that's not, that's not Luke. So I need to be told that so that I can kind of monitor and say, okay, is he feeling lethargic? Is he, is her, are his sugars dropping? Is there something going on with him that needs immediate attention? Um, and the other thing that we all always had was that the school nurse or parent must be on site for field trips or extracurricular activities. So there would be days where I would take a half a day or my husband would take a half a day and we would accompany a school if it was, especially if it was an outdoor activity where he might exhibit some kind of stress, physical stress. So how do I acquire a 504 for my child? This is a pretty exhaustive list and most schools will not have you go through all of this. Um, 
but some schools are a little harder to, you know, they, they don't want to provide accommodations for your child. Um, first, you need to document your child's needs. For example, Luke's um, ER protocol letter, protocol letter from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was enough. It listed um, what his condition was and what are some of the things that can happen to him throughout the day. And that was enough to make the school say, okay, we need to listen to this mom and, and, and listen to this child's, you know, what he or she needs. Find out who the school 504 coordinator is. Um, Luke's 504 is handled by his guidance counselors. The school district that I work for also is a, a guidance counselor, handles the 504 coordination. Some schools have a nurse do it. Some schools have a specific coordinator who handles it. Just find out who it is, and that's your main contact person. Once you find out who that person is, you can request a formal 504 plan. And I always just follow up if, especially if you haven't heard anything from a while, for a while, and then through that um, initial contact with your 504 manager, you would go through your 504 plan evaluation. And that's where they would look at, at the documentation. Does your child need it? Yes, no. Um, and then you proceed as long as your child uh, qualifies, you work through that 504 plan together. And um, I even brought Luke with me to kindergarten, even his kindergarten one, just so that he understood and they understood and they could kind of put a face to a name um, what he would need throughout the day and what he looks like in a regular healthy state and his actions. I thought that that was really important to include him and give him a little bit of voice. Um, some schools are easier, make it a lot easier for parents than others. His school was so easy. We didn't have to do step steps four and seven were all kind of handled as he entered kindergarten. One meeting, it was great. It was seamless. And all we have to do is kind of revisit the 504 each year and say, what do we want to add? What do we want to delete? And I'll get to that in a second. So here are just some helpful tips. And this is where being a mom of, of a child who has a 504 and also being a teacher who works with the 504s, this is where kind of my unique experience comes in. Um, first of all, be collaborative. This is a team effort. We all want your child to succeed. I know my son's teachers want him to succeed. So let's work together. And if you approach it from a very collaborative standpoint, things tend to go really smoothly as opposed to, you know, coming in there with full guns blazing. You don't need to do that right away. Um, be persistent, though, in trusting what your child needs to be successful throughout his or her educational journey. I like to think of what Luke needs throughout the day. Okay, when he gets up, he eats breakfast. And then around maybe 10 o'clock, he would need a snack. Um, depending on what his or her needs are is how you're going to want to structure that 504 and, and the things, um, you know, maybe he has to go to the bathroom at a certain time of day. Um, so think about your child's day and what he or she needs to be able to learn. Um, involve your child in these discussions. Yesterday, Luke's schedule came out and we looked at his schedule together. We found out that his lunch was six period. So we were looking for a good spot within his schedule to work in a snack break. Um, 
And then of course his teachers would be alerted to that. Offer to help the school with your accommodations. So a box of alternate snacks, just in case. Um, if there's a special a party or celebration and they're offering peanut product, you offer a non-peanut product so that the child is still celebrating, is still feels a part of it, but it's something that's completely within the realm of their um, acceptability. I've even offered to buy wipes um, in elementary school for the teacher to have to, you know, wipe down the desk. And, and a lot of public schools will say, no, 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 we have custodial budgets for that, but offer. I think it, 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 it sets the tone for a really good relationship. Um, be patient. This is a hard one. I know it's your child and you love your child and you want your child to succeed, but understand that a teacher can have up to 35 plus students in a classroom at any given time. Um, and it takes a while for us to get to know our students. For example, I have four different sections of kids, up to 35 kids a day. That could be, you know, 120, usually I have about 90 kids on my roster, but it could be upwards of 130, 140. If I include things like study halls and other kinds of things, it takes us a while to get to kind of place that name with that 504. I do a lot of homework with it, but still give us a little bit of time to, to get to know your students and understand that, um, this is a living document which needs to be reviewed and amended each year. So that's, you know, every, every September we go in and we review it and he's almost at the end of his high school journey here. So we haven't had to do too much of that, but it's there for you. Now what happens when the school doesn't follow the 504? So reread the plan. Because sometimes you know, okay, well, he's not supposed to run excessively, but if it's not in the actual plan, you don't really have any basis for it. So make sure that what you're asking for is actually covered in the language of the plan. Um, keep good documentation. Write down dates or times when the plan wasn't followed. Keep an email um, folder, keep an email um, list of threads of every time that you contacted the teacher and told her, you know, that things weren't being followed. Documentation is key, especially when we get to the bottom of this, if something does go further. Um, try to encourage self-advocacy skills for your child, if appropriate, and if it's a non-emergency situation. Email a gentle reminder to the teachers. Again, especially in a high school situation where I could have over 100 students per semester, sometimes if a parent just says, well, you realize my child has extra time for the 504. Oh, yes, that's right. Absolutely. He can retake the test or she can retake the test. Sometimes and a lot of times, at least with me as the teacher, this will resolve any infraction quickly. Sometimes you get teachers who still don't want to follow the 504 and it happens. 
unfortunately. But if three and four don't yield any action, now it's time to go a little bit higher and to contact the 504 coordinator and schedule a meeting about noncompliance. If there's still no resolution, you go up the chain of command. And I have a, a slide that shows kind of a general chain of command of most school districts. You know, you start with the building principal, then the director of uh, pupil services. Those are all good places to start when there's something of noncompliance. Um, consider the complaints as civil rights, the Office of Civil Rights. There's all kinds of websites that show you how to do that. Um, if it does, again, go that far. And number eight is the terrible L word that nobody wants to deal with. Parents, um, school districts, nobody wants to go down this road. But if you really feel as though your child has been discriminated against because of his or her disability and has not been appropriately accommodated with her or his 504, you can file a lawsuit. But just make sure that you understand these are very, very expensive. They're very, very time consuming. And so you have to have a really strong case and document, document, document. All of these steps up here should be documented so that you can win your case. Here's the hierarchy school chart um, that I said that I would provide. Your teachers are your first line, teachers, aides, et cetera. They're your first line. They're really they, they, they're number one on your team, in my, in my opinion. Counselors and 504 coordinators would be next, followed by principals, followed by director of pupil services, and then lastly, your superintendent, which hopefully none of us need to visit. Down here is where I like to kind of stay, both as a parent and a teacher. Private schools. Do, five, do 504s have are are they have let me, sorry let me rephrase that do these apply to private schools yes and no if a private school receives direct federal funding they must adhere to a section 504 if they do not receive any direct funding or or any kind of federal monies then it's up to the individual school as to whether or not they want to follow a 504 Therefore, it's important for you as parents to do a little bit of research if you're not sending your child to a public school. All public schools have to follow this, but private schools, you know, you want to maybe check out, do they have a school nurse? Um, are they good about following 504s? Ask around in your community. Do a little bit of, you know, research for yourself to, so that you don't get in a bind later. And this is just a slide of the different resources that I've used to put together this presentation. Thanks so much, ladies. That is all really great information. And I know that our parent community is feeling a lot of anxiety um, as we're getting ready to go back to school. So Gina, I'm gonna start with you. Can you talk a little bit about some, some tips and ideas for kids, right? Because Every school district is different. Every school is different in terms of whether they're requiring masks, what the COVID protocols will be. But having a child with a rare disease who needs to be protected and know that you, regardless of what the school does, you need to go in wearing your mask, right? And being, being careful and taking extra precautions. Can you talk a little bit about recommendations for the kids to help navigate 
when they may be in an environment where most kids aren't wearing a mask and, um, you know, how they can have those conversations with their, their, their peers and the teacher to understand the importance of this for them. Um, so that there's not pressure to not wear a mask or, you know, right. Because peers, peers feed off of each other. Um, so any thoughts or recommendations for how to help the kids navigate those kinds of situations? I think you're asking a good question because this is a different dilemma than what we faced last year. Mm -hmm. Last year, we thought, oh, the children are going to fight us. And even at the preschool level, it really wasn't an issue. Even with those children with a disability, they all wore their masks and it was just part of that day. They had opportunities of breaks to break free from that mask wearing. But you're right, this year where it's just a mixed bag of personal choice in some corporations and some corporations, they have automatically mandated that mask wearing. You will have to follow through and learn about what each individual school corporation, but then it also ends up going down to individual schools and individual classes as well. What the teacher, and I would probably really partner, have a teacher partner in crime collaborate what can we do to reward what kind of masks I always say if it, if it can be their favorite color their interests you know some of them had really fun goofy ones um, Olaf mask or something that would make it enjoyable or entertaining so that they could get even positive attention for wearing the mask I would probably go that route of making it so that they can feel fun and that they could actually receive um, praise and then be rewarded on those masks. Just like I think what some of the students did last year, that it had some personality to that. You're going to have some students that will just automatically will wear them because it's just an expectation. Um, and then also with social distancing, the way the desks are arranged and so forth of when it's proper and when it's not. And if there's, we need to kind of have a little bit of reward incentives where the, there's a log and the teacher saying, yes, your child wore their mask during this day and you're at home and you're providing more reward opportunities or more family incentives. They can also know that they're going to earn something going home. That may also be uh, rewarding to them. That can be very motivating. I would say find ways to make it motivating is going to be key, whether it be personality or putting in some um, documentation where you can track that reward for mask wearing. If that's going to be pivotal, for that family decision that this child will wear a mask. Yeah, I get, I, I agree. Thank you for that. Because it, it really is going to be, regardless of what the rules are, because they're so all over the board, individual families are going to have to make decisions on what is best for them and then just move forward with that. Um, and, and then that's going to that's gonna be tough in some situations, but I appreciate that. Um, what, the next question that I have is, you know, you talk a lot about keeping the kids part of the conversation um, with COVID. And can you talk a little bit about a balance? Like, what is too much, right? Because I even feel like for us as an adult, we're inundated with that information. Everywhere we look, it's on the news, it's everywhere. And I find myself now feeling like I need to just turn the TV off because it just gets to be too much sometimes. So how do we find a balance um, as a family in knowing what is 
what is an appropriate amount to have the discussion? When do we need to just put it to rest and not talk about it so that the kids don't feel some of that anxiety that as parents we might be feeling? I think, as I shared before, letting their questions guide you, you will know that. And then kind of uh, as I've given a bit of key features, if you're seeing some of these behaviors that I pointed out of anxiousness, if it's more clinginess, um, more physical, like their stomach or headaches, if you're seeing some more things where they're nervous, then it's time to really have a conversation. But I think empowering them where they know, here's what we're going to do to stay safe. And they know, and if they're good to go with that, and you're not seeing any signs, I think you're fine. Um, that's where they're going to be kind of a bit of a guide. As long as you've empowered them, they're very aware of COVID. They're very aware of the safety practices and can, and be able to articulate that back to you. I think you've done that. If they're showing some signs where there's some anxiety in which I laid out various age groups, then you may realize, all right, we've got to come back to the drawing board. We've got to revisit this conversation and see what's going on and, and what's bothering them. And if it, they need to draw because they may have a tough time articulating or writing, however, we need to communicate. That's the best method for them. And then what they need to have reassurance on and guiding them through, um, through things. Um, I wish that we did have some like with Dr. Fauci or some others that made some recordings for children. I think that would be very helpful if we have access to those types of materials too, because sometimes I know that adults might use bigger words than what the children are ready to receive or understand. And so, and the kids may not necessarily ask you what those words mean. So it's also careful of our vocabulary choices to make sure that they're age appropriate for the child. Um, follow your instincts, you know your child, you know your child's language levels and what they're able to handle. And then also your child's mental health. What is it that they're able to take in and what is it that they may not necessarily need to know because it's going to be too much. You're going to have to gauge and just watch their body language and their questions. If they're asking many questions over and over again, they're still anxious. And so it's like helping them reduce that anxious and, and redirecting into what we can do for calm and also to help them feel control. That's going to be key because some of them, if they're repeating over and over again, then that tells you, you, you that they're they're still feeling nervous about the situation yeah. and they may have, and they may be processing it, but that it might not be okay. They're not grasping what I'm saying, but it could be a sign. So I didn't necessarily include that feature in there. I included mostly of the body language to pay attention to and the actions. But I think verbally, that's probably a strategy where it's like, okay, they're a bit nervous. They need to feel in control. And so let's help them see where their control is so that they feel less anxious. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Beth, I have a question for you. So there, were, there was a lot of um, back and forth in the Q&A about clear masks. And that being a limitation, you know, for, for some children that may have um, a hearing impairment, is it appropriate to request that perhaps the teacher wear a clear mask um, that can help with a child that may be hearing impaired and now you've got a mask on and it's muffled and they can't really understand? What are your I thoughts? Think I think it is absolutely appropriate to ask for that. Um, uh, we had a situation last year where my good friend, she had to wear a clear mask because her, her student lip read and could not understand anything through the mask unless she was wearing that. So I do think it's appropriate. 
Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. And then for the for the 504s and IEPs, at what age does that become a necessary um, process to start going through? Like, do do you, is it like when a, when a child's in you know preschool, or is it when like testing becomes involved and it's more more academic based? What are your thoughts about that? I know some parents have started with the preschool depending on, because preschools have gotten so much more involved. It's not just about play. There's a lot of um, learning and, and benchmarks and things that go into it. So I do know some parents who've started it. We mm -hmm. did not feel that that was necessary when we did it. I would say definitely kindergarten. And again, it, it, it will really depend on this preschool that you've chosen. If it's a, a private, locally funded preschool, they may not adhere to anything, but kindergarten for sure. Okay. Um, so along the lines of the clear mass, someone, oh, someone asked um, about, um, hang on one second, the question just disappeared. It says, can the presenter speak to the unique concerns and experiences with needs accommodations for students with reduced vision, both during and after COVID? What is typically requested and accommodated in class environments for reduced vision needs without other learning issues present? So I've, I've dealt with that. Um, one thing that we've done is there are textbooks and even now that like a lot of our textbooks have gone online, you can get them blown up or you can, um, you know, obviously increase the font size for the physical textbooks. Um, I've, I've had parents say, I want paper for my child. And if the parent requests paper, you have to give them paper. Um, so in that respect, we, we have had um, an aide would go and, and take, um, let's say an assignment and blow it up to a particular magnification so that the student could use it. So, you know, as long as it's a reasonable request, we do it. We do everything. As part of a blind low vision assessment, they're going to assess to determine, especially like when you're talking about font size, because if it's too big, you're going to slow down the reading speed and that can compromise obviously reading comprehension. They're gonna look at the ideal of font size. They're gonna look at type of color screen accommodations like with computer use. Sometimes it's paper because you're going to have to have color contrast. And also the child's vision needs regarding the, the use of color contrast. Um, and so really when as part of, of and it's probably in every state, you're gonna have blind low vision assessments. They're going to cover that kind of information. And of course, I was also asked about deaf and hard of hearing. I think collaborating with those specialized teachers is going to be important to make sure what types of technological access or other types of accommodations that are needed that are they able to still be in place because we have this mask use, we have social distancing. We have a lot of factors here that interfere with that because a lot of times with deaf and hard of hearing, we actually wanna get in kind of closer to reduce environmental sounds, for example, provide clarity for speech reading. But with the blind low vision, it may be also types of access of what's available to them if they have another type of computer screen that provides more uh, visual information up close. 
I think that you'll have to collaborate with your provider because those teachers are obviously having to gain some more skills and training given all of these uh, health accommodations that are now in place that kind of interfere with the types of accommodations that deaf and hard of hearing and also blind low vision are used to receiving. So I do know that they have kind of accommodated more further with that. I mentioned a little bit more of like real-time captioning, uh, also the use of sound field systems for those with deaf and hard of hearing. Those can be within 504 plans if the child's performing on grade level. And it also can be in an, in an individualized education program. So it really differs overall. And I know the questions were about college and that is also gonna to have to be in collaboration with student learning services at each and every college and what can be available and what the professors also agreeing to because we know that state mandates and everywhere it's all very it's yeah. hard to speak on what each college is going to agree to. Yeah, a lot of moving pieces. There's no question about that. Beth, I have another question for you. So, you know, you talked about the FERPA and the limitations in terms of what can be shared between um, teachers and what can't be shared. What are your thoughts and recommendation? I guess really this question is for both of you about, you know, in addition to establishing the 504 plans and the IEPs, having an annual sit down, like at the beginning of the year with the entire te you know, team of teachers and school nurse and guidance counselor to make sure that everybody's on the same page so that you can make sure everyone has access to all the same information and everyone is moving forward. Um, you know, with all the same information available to them. I think that's a great idea. Um, it's it's kind of difficult sometimes with teacher contracts and those in-service days in the beginning year. Mm. They pack us with meetings and different kinds of professional development that we have to go to. And schools are not able they're not legally allowed in a, in a public school to ask you to stay beyond your contracted time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've done as a parent, now that my son has six or seven different teachers is, and I'm going to do it when I get off here today is now that I have his schedule, I'm going to go through his schedule and just fire off a, just a, an email blast to all his teachers say, Hey, this is Lou. I'm Luke's mom. Um, he has a 504, not anything major, just this is an alert. Yeah. Check it out that first couple days of school because Luke's could be, you know, uh, an emergency situation if not followed on day one, especially with the heat. Um, just, just a kind of, just a friendly, Hey, this is, this is us. Uh, if you have any questions, please email me. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely it. See, with IEPs, you have to meet once a year for certain. And you also have to with 504 plans as well. They have to be revisited every year. And it, I think it's always great to let the whole staff know, here's the plan. You know, with the nature of Zoom and Google Meets, those are also easier too with everybody kind of spread out and just having a brief meeting of touching base if this is okay. I would say definitely if the needs are pretty extreme, extensive and, and very life-threatening. You definitely want to make sure everyone is on the same page. But if it's really some of your minor uh, type of accommodations, yeah, I think email is probably going to be a good way of making sure everybody is aware. I just think those 
health needs that are more significant and very concerning, that's when I would probably ask to make sure we all at least touch base and we all are on the same page to prevent anything from happening. And I think an administrator would definitely want to agree to that. Yeah, that's really great. So, and what we just have a couple minutes left and I have one last question. Can you talk a little bit about ways to empower your student? when they have an IEP or a 504 and like, especially for you, Beth, like when your son needs to eat at certain times and the teacher may not be compliant to that, how do you help your student advocate for themselves in an environment, right? Where they have a teacher who is a person of authority um, and feel comfortable being able to speak up to say, hey, you know, Ms. Fulcher, I need to eat or I'm supposed to have extra time without it causing an issue for the student and then the relationship with the teacher. We actually had that happen two years ago. Um, it was it was a study hall teacher, so she may not have been as in tune to the 504. She should have been, but she wasn't. Um, and he would he got yelled at for eating. And I said to him, "Okay, Luke, you're in ninth grade now or eighth grade. You have to tell her. And I'll even give you, you know, a copy." of your 504 that says it and you can keep it in your agenda book at school and say hey can can you look at that and he's pretty shy so he had kind of a hard time with it and because of the nature of it the next time it happened i did contact the teacher directly just because it was a little bit more of an emergent thing i yeah. didn't want him to worry about getting in trouble and the teacher was fine then she just she and she said to me too have him advocate it, keep it in his agenda book. And I'm like, I've said these things, but unless, especially if your child doesn't want to be seen as different. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's really hard. So you just kind of keep encouraging them. Um, maybe just have like a little thing that says 504 that they can hold up for the teacher. So they don't have to speak even. Yeah. Um, yeah, they want something inconspicuous. That is definitely a factor. What I've also said is like when you're doing that early beginning of the year meeting with parents and even with ch children, it's like, okay, I want him to be able to advocate. Let's collaborate how to make sure it's the best avenue and whether the child can say and do just to give a reminder that, okay, it's time for me to eat or I need to be able to have that accommodation. That way they know that they're comfortable but then also that it will be accepted and that they're not going to be penalized to be looking like if they're being a smart aleck or anything of that nature, because we want them to be able to know how to self-advocate and feel that it's appropriate and okay to do so. Or if the child's like, but I'm still nervous, I don't like saying that to the teacher, then is what kind of sign or a little bit that we can hold up? Because I, even, you know, 504 might be, they might comfortable, or if they just need a little bit like a hand wave or something that's more natural or inconspicuous, some students may be much more prone to or accepting of that. But so I would say try to be on the front end of that and for the teacher and the student to know how they can properly advocate will be very helpful. I think that's a good idea to kind of add that as the beginning of the year meeting too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you ladies so much. And I think, you know, some of the takeaways that, that we can all um, learn from is that communication is key. Communications with our students, with our kids and with the school and the teachers. Um, and there's ways to do that 
in a, in a positive manner so that everyone's working together on behalf of the child. Um, and it's, it's a very positive um, environment for them. So I thank you both for your time and providing all of this, of this really, really great information. Um, it's such a stressful time for our families and having information and, you know, to arm our families with as they get ready to prepare to go back for school. It's, it's a very stressful time, um, but we're here to support you and as you make some really tough decisions in the coming weeks. So as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again, share with others or um, pass along um, to even to your school to listen to um, or your teachers. Thank you to each and every one of you for joining us today for our monthly Mito Expert Series. Be safe, and if there's anything Mito Action can do to help you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks, ladies. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Take care.